Hello everyone, welcome to the 100th episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina, and as Kyle said, this is the 100th episode. I am overwhelmed in a good way that we've reached this point in our podcasting. I never expected we'd reach 100. Did you expect it, Kyle? No, because to be honest, right in the beginning, we were like, Okay, let's make an episode about prep. Okay, let's make an episode about this theme and that theme. And eventually, I was like, at some point, we're going to run out of themes, right? So, thankfully, we, we didn't run into that anymore. We were just like, hey, how about instead of themes, which are too broad, you know, and all-encompassing, let's talk about certain topics within those themes. And for that reason, you're able to do whatever you wanted, basically. Just make it tangentially debatable. Sometimes it's not even debatable at all in the case of like red tagging or when we're talking about like human rights violations. Um, But yeah, so in the beginning, I really didn't know that we would reach episode 100. And I find it sort of a blessing that we didn't restrict ourselves anymore to that kind of limiting theme-based episode. So if you have been here since the beginning you would know that our starting episodes were very broad, right? And I think that as much as I like those episodes, like I look back fondly on them, I'm really happy that Kyle and I decided to be a lot more specific with what we talked about that allowed us to, you know, stretch basically all the conversations we have. So anyway, for today, since it's the 100th episode, we wanted to do something special and introduce you to the team we are working with. You met them last episode already through their favorite motions. But for this episode, we wanted you to meet them through listening to what they are most passionate about. So we asked them to record a seven-minute speech a la debate style about something that they really liked or disliked, whatever they wanted to rant about. And we're going to listen to them live and give you a live reaction on these topics. Yeah, that's the first time that we're listening to them in full. But our instruction, we did, we did give an instruction. We were like, hey, um, we'd really love to introduce you all to the community like formally. Unfortunately, because of like this messed up situation we're in, we couldn't really find a time for all of us to record together. So we're just like, how about record something that encapsulates who you are um, like a debate speech that encapsulates who you are and then send it to us and that's what we're going to play back um, so that's what we're going to be listening um, today that's what we're going to be listening to today wow grammar yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah we should um, start first by talking about why this theme was formed because I remember last episode we sort of also just introduced them without giving a sort of backstory of how we got here. So Kyle, how did we get to this point? Yeah, so if you read, I I mean like for the like three people who read, I actually don't know how many people read this, but we did get interviewed for the Diliman Debate Review, I think that's what it's still called, where um a lot of these Filipino-led debate initiatives were sort of highlighted. And we had the privilege and honor to be featured as one of them. So I suppose because you're talking about how much of an honor it is, I should have downplayed how many people read it. Um, 
But I we did explain the story there. We were like, at first we were just a podcast, but when we realized that our mission or what we wanted from the podcast was to make debate um accessible to everyone, we realized that just podcasting wasn't gonna cut it. We should give people opportunities to practice what they've learned if they've learned anything from the podcast or from their own trainings. Uh, so that's the reason why we created tournaments. And at this juncture, I just want to promote that the second installment of Debatable Open is already open, <laughs> which means that you can already register the phase one of the registration process. The first stage is already open for everyone. So just like before, we are super proud of making this concept of like, we're using our podcast in order to enhance the experience for tournament goers by inviting a lot of these experts from different fields and then interviewing them on motions that they'd like us to set or that they'd like to set for that tournament. And we're going to repeat that for this year's Debatable Open. So if you want to experience that with us for the second time, um, this March 19 to 20, you can already start your registration process by going to bit.ly slash dope2022 phase one. And, you know, anyway, since we started doing this whole um, tournament thing, that's when you realize we couldn't do it alone. Like, we could do it alone like anyone can, I think, hypothetically do it on their own. It's just that it takes so much time, so much effort, and, like, it will inevitably cause delays, which is why we needed a team. So the first time around, we created a team um, ad hoc, which means that, like, you know, it was just an impromptu thing. Like, we were talking about it among friends, and we were just like, hey, do you want to you wanna organize a tournament? And we were just like, yeah. But then eventually, we were like, let's make this a thing. Let's make this happen, like, every year. And that's the origin story, so to speak, of the debate the beans. Yeah, so that's the story. Um right now we are a team of 7. 7 for 7 minutes, I guess, whatever uh symbol that may be. And I just want to say that there's a story for how each one joined. So we didn't, you know, formally invite these people. It just kind of happened one day that, you know, one by one we reached out and they got added to the group chat. And then eventually, we sort of finalized what the roles were. So I think it's fate. You know, I I don't know what other people call it. Coincidence. They think the universe is manifesting something. I think it's just really cool. And I think I met a lot of cool people through this team. And I'm very excited to introduce all of them to you formally. Or actually, we'll have them introduce themselves. So... Without further ado, the first person we'd like to introduce is Charlie Vitog. Um, and let's hear what Charlie has to say as their formal introduction. Hi everyone, what's up? This is Charlie, Chief Content Officer of Debatable. Welcome to the 100th episode. The reason I like debating is because it finds a middle ground between sports and the arts, two of my favorite topics of discussion. My life motto actually comes from rapper, pro wrestler, and actor John Cena where you have to live by the words of hustle, loyalty, and respect. Thanks. You know, I, I forgot that we asked them for their life motto. 
Um, and it's really interesting to hear Charlie's, you know. <laughs> there, there's sort of like this huge disjunct between like my mental image of Charlie and like their life motto, which is, it's about drive. It's about, well, not that because that's The Rock, not John Cena, but you know, like the hustle thing. Um, that's that's what I really liked about um meeting Charlie and getting to know them because I mean actually for all the members of the debated beans I was at some point intimidated by them Charlie included even though Charlie is so much younger than us um so <laughs> it's always a pleasure getting to know these different sides of these amazing and wonderful people do you have a life motto um no actually <laughs> if I had a motto it would be like Something from Lord of the Rings, like, um, there's good in the world and it's worth fighting for. Yeah, Sigar Ganon. Mine is probably kill them with kindness. I've always had that since high school. I stopped implementing it in college, but I feel like I'm back in that happy phase in my life where I can implement it again, you know? Yeah, so um, Charlie is the chief content officer, which means that they are the ones who will eventually be responsible for like newsletters and captions and stuff. Um, basically, whenever you're seeing like formal announcements somewhere, Charlie has probably had a hand in crafting what we're about to say, um, which is why like recently we've had such a unique voice um, in our, you know, public statements as debatable. And that's largely because of Charlie. Um so what what are we going to do next? Are we going to play their their speech or are we going to move on to the next introduction? I think Persuaders. speech should be good. Yeah, what's yeah, okay. their topic about? Um I think their topic was about uh, emotion. No, they, no, their their topic is a review of candy jar. So oh, yeah, I sorry. actually wanted to do this long ago, but we just I don't know. Why we why didn't did we know not? how it fit? We didn't know how it fit like our our format, like the podcasting format, we didn't know how to like. Let's do a movie review, which is a vid- visual medium, um. But we didn't know how to convert it into the audio medium, which is what a podcast is. Sigura, yeah. if this if this was like a video essay, we would be playing Charlie's like review with like clips from the movie, because that falls under fair use. Yeah, so I guess if you haven't seen the movie, uh, spoiler warning, I guess. I'm not sure exactly what the... Again, we haven't listened to these things. We don't know what it says yet, but I'm just going to give you a spoiler warning to be safe. So this is Charlie's review of Candy Jar. Let's give it a listen. So today's topic is about the 2018 Netflix original, Candy Jar. You've probably heard of this movie before, um, since there is quite some discussion around it with the debate community. Um, just a few things about this movie before we get into it. For one, that it features quite an interesting cast. People like Jacob Lottimore from The Maze Runner, Uzo Aduba from Orange is the New Black, and Christina Hendricks, which just has multiple awards as a whole. So yeah, now that we have that done, uh, just a quick gist of the film. Basically, there are two top-notch students, also top-notch debaters in high school. Um, they're forced to be co-presidents of their team, but the twist is that they hate each other. Um, the film is rated average for most audiences, but for the debate audience specifically, it's below average because of the inaccuracies in the way that they portray debate. So that's what we're basically going to talk about. 
today. Um, the first thing I want to weigh then is that why is this movie disliked? And I think that most of these arguments come from the debater perspective. Firstly, is that they say it's not a realistic portrayal of debate. And I've decided to agree with this with a bunch of minor concerns and major concerns. Minor concerns being just like slight inaccuracies, which don't necessarily create significant harm to the viewers, and then the major inaccuracies, which are probably quite offensive. So firstly, in terms of minor concerns, um, the first thing is that debaters in this film bring their laptops to the podium and just like prepare these motions in advance. And when I say it here in this podcast, it probably wouldn't sound like much of a concern, but admittedly, in all the times that I've watched this movie, this was the main comment that debaters would have, that debate is so much harder compared to how it is portrayed in this um, movie, right? Um, just a few scenes that kind of hint on this, where firstly, like a bunch of people are screaming in front of their laptops um, when they bring it to the podium, or you see a bunch of statistics mentioned in the speech, or even um, the judges directly saying that the way you cope with a very fast manner of speaking is because these have been emailed to each other in advance. So yeah, from there, the main premise is just like these speeches uh, probably have a lot of like rigorous research behind them, um, and you've heard these arguments before, you've probably had days to prepare them. Um, the first realization that I've had here, since the first time I watched the movie was in my freshman year of high school, but I recently watched it like a few days ago just to make this review. Um, This whole debating on laptops thing probably shouldn't be a concern anymore. I feel like with the whole online debating thing, um, we have found ourselves in this position multiple times since most of us have been using devices absent paper or absent the usual index cards. But second is that this whole prepared speeches thing I get that it isn't the usual debate formats that we're used to, where we have to cram our speeches in 15 or 30 minutes or one hour, um, like in the BP, AP, or Austral's formats. But when you do refer back to WSDC tournaments, there are a lot of prep motions, and just given the other details given in the um, movie, like let's say um, that you have eight minutes to speak, then you kind of can come to the conclusion that perhaps they're doing the WSDC format, but obviously it's just like a small realization, not much effect, but I just thought it was quite interesting to realize. The second concern is that the concept of two club precedents was depicted as outrageous in the film because it was quote-unquote undemocratic. Now, I think that this is odd, considering that many debate institutions do have things like co-captain systems where not one captain is higher than the other. However, it was undemocratic in this movie, and I think they are fair enough to call it out, because they skipped the whole usual election process after having an even number of members for that school year. And I think this is just an interesting to note, interesting thing to note, right? Uh, why is that? Note that in most votes in debate, like let's say in equity or in panels or, or in edge core, uh, what ends up happening is like, you do not want to have an even number of people because you know that in the event that someone splits sides, then perhaps there will be a tight result and you want to avoid that. That is why we take mitigating measures to this, like let's say um, giving the chair two votes in a panel for BP or for AP, etc. So yeah, when this is the case, I think it's just like these small processes that we do have to follow as debaters in the debate community, which they do get to embody in the film. So perhaps kudos to them for that. But this whole exaggeration of having two club precedents and suddenly that's what the whole conflict of the film revolves around is something that I feel like um, then somewhat affected the quality of the film as well in terms of how much it was relatable. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I want to do then is weigh out the major concerns. There are also two things under this. For one, 
people say that it portrays debaters as introverted and antisocial. And I do feel like this is a fair enough complaint, right? It's the fact that Ben Russell, sorry, Bennett Russell, which is the male protagonist of this film, um, says that he doesn't go on romantic dates because the only thing he knows how to do is argue with people. Or perhaps a female protagonist, Lona Skinner, is unfamiliar with classic movie references when her professor talks about whiplash or to actively rebut the other adults in the film when they say, follow your heart. And her response is to say that, well, my heart is just like a part of my body. It does not influence the decisions that I make in life. So here I feel like I, f- I found it quite offensive in a sense that a lot of debaters are just like quite interesting people. Admittedly, a lot of debaters aren't just debaters. A lot of the time, these are athletes outside of debate. These are artists outside of debate. They are perhaps youth leaders, student leaders, or just anything else other than being a debater. So yeah, I think this is just the first thing. But second is that it forgets the good parts of debate as well. Um, And this is another major complaint. How does that look like? So it pretends that these are probably instances that are exclusive to high school rather than lifelong relationships that you are able to build in debate. So here they say that perhaps the experiences you have are something that will only matter in high school because the only reason you are in debate is because you're supposed to prepare yourself for the future. And as long as you reach that future, then your debate career is done for you. So this is basically what is implied here in this film, which I feel like isn't the case for most people. A lot of lifelong relationships, friendships, and just like experiences that are very much worth remembering do happen in debate. So from there, I do feel like that's something that I just want to clarify. If ever you're trying to learn more about debate but decided to watch this movie, please do not depend on how debate is depicted in this movie. But now, credits to the film. What are some good things here? Firstly, I think it is realistic in the sense that we care too much for our debate careers, that we put ourselves in unwanted positions. How does that look like? So Bennett and Lona dislike each other but had to be partners because they are the top-notch debaters of their school. Um, so perhaps in our world, this would be like the Team A that you would have gotten in like matchups based on like the results of tryouts or something. So we do find ourselves in these positions sometimes, and this is why I feel like this portrayal was good. And perhaps this is what the movie plot should have been dependent on, that sometimes you have to partner up with people because you are the strongest team, or just a general idea that you do not get to choose your partner and therefore you end up disagreeing with each other, or perhaps you just don't like them as a person. Um, And that's what debate does to us sometimes. We put ourselves in unwanted positions. So I feel like this should have been the main conflict of the film, as compared to this whole, you dislike them simply because you are co-presidents as well. Uh, The second um, problem here is that, sorry, the second good thing about this film, rather, is that it's a coming-of-age film, and I really want to highlight this for this discussion. How does that look like? So debaters in the film do not care about the present. And in fact, there are scenes which imply that the only reason they debate is just so that they can invest into their future. How does that look like when there are active discussions about Yale University being their dream college, and as soon as they get accepted into it, they're done with this whole debate thing? From here, I feel like this is an interesting aspect, because a lot of the time as debaters, we are unable to realize how much debate forces us to grow up. How does that look like? That perhaps you are a middle schooler who joined debate, but now you find yourself talking about things like discrimination and just like the death of minorities, or perhaps now you learn how to travel with people um, who aren't part of your family, you learn how to travel alone and like a bunch of friends. So from here, I do feel like these are very, very exclusive to um, debate that are embodied in this movie, that it's coming of age and you are forced to grow up in in debate. And that's what I really appreciated about this. So my final review about this movie then, with everything I just said, is that 
for one, if you are a debater, then perhaps you can watch this film. If you are a debater that knows how debate works, knows how to question which parts of these are actually true. But if you are someone who is only interested in knowing more about debate and don't necessarily have a full grasp of the dynamics of it yet, um, please do not watch this movie yet. Because what ends up happening is that it might give you a very, very negative perspective of debate. There is a very nice part in the movie, though, where throughout this partnership, by the way, and I guess I should have inserted this a while ago, throughout this partnership between Bennett and Lona, because they were forced to come together, even if they started as rivals or enemies and just hating each other and playing all of that, they do end up building a very strong relationship throughout the movie. And I think that's just something that embodies what is very good about debate, that it finds you in situations where you probably built connections with people that you wouldn't have built connections with otherwise, and it is precisely debate that brought you together. So yeah, I guess that's just me for that's just everything from me today. Uh, hoping you guys like the discussion. Thanks. Yeah, I I suddenly remember the movie Candy Jar, and like I do agree. I think one of our main qualms with it, Kyle, was that it was super inaccurate in portraying debate. But I did realize, and this is for everyone's, uh, you know knowledge that there are formats in the united states that use this kind of speed reading that read from laptops um basically when you read a lot of stuff it's called spreading like you spread the case as much as you can by saying as much as you can in as little time as possible um this is very common in public forum debates um though don't ask me for the specifics because that's not a format i do but, you know, it's just interesting to note that the American style of debating um, is quite different from what we usually do here in Asia. Yeah, I think that that is actually true, that when we think of debating, we don't usually think of spreading. Although for a very long period of time in other places in the world, like especially the United States, when you say debating, that is what you think of. You think of spreading. Um, so I think it's like public policy debates. When I was like younger in in twenty tens, the early twenty tens, I googled on YouTube. I I searched on YouTube like debate videos, and back then there weren't a lot of debate videos in the Asian or British parliamentary format, except for the few like worlds videos. A lot of it is you know portraying spreading. Um, but I think that. What can be interesting to talk about from Candy Jar is how can we bring debating to a mass audience, right? Because the problem with Candy Jar and other movies or like TV shows, if there are any about debating, is how do you portray the act of debating in such a way that it communicates its appeal? So, like, even if Candy Jar was accurate in how it portrays activity, in my opinion, it still wouldn't communicate why debating would be a fun activity. Like, um, for example, how it's often a mental game of chess, um, where you can bring up a silver bullet argument and, like, you're going to watch them struggle to pick up the pieces of their of their case. Um, how, at least in my case, what I really like about debating is the ability to tell stories and craft your own worlds in seven minutes or how you hone critical thinking and can see nuance faster, see logical flaws faster. So I think at some point we should make it so that we accept a trade-off, right? Like it's okay if, for me, it's okay if the movie is not completely accurate to how the sport 
plays in reality so long as um it portrays how it feels so i'm thinking of like Yu-Gi-Oh for example where like you watch Yu-Gi-Oh or i watched Yu-Gi-Oh and it it's nothing like how it plays competitively but it does get people going it does get people interested into playing the game first and foremost and from there that's when they learn you know the more technical rules and me of the comic that we bought like way long ago like before covid was it before covid Kyle that we bought this yeah, comic yeah before covid yeah so the comic's name is point ma'am and it's a accurate representation of what it's like to be in a debate community um it's also very lgbt ridden um which is ridden? you know very accurate yeah like it's full of lgbt characters is that is no it- I, I was like is that the negative does ridden have a negative connotation Oh, I don't know. I never use it in a negative way. But it could have. I'm sorry if it did. Um, it has a lot of LGBT representation, yeah. Y- yeah, so Point Ma'am, it's by at Tiny Carabao. I'm not sure if that's still their handle. Um, I-, I could search that and I could promote you properly if I find your new Twitter handle. But basically, Point Ma'am was a comic that talked about more of the competitive aspect of debating and the, you know, the fears and insecurities that come with it. And I think this um, deals with what Charlie was talking about, right? Because they were talking about how it's good that it's a coming-of-age story, but more uh, more focus could have been given to the fact that, you know, it's very intimidating to be in debate and things like that. So I think this comic does that well. And I'm sure, you know, one day, maybe one day we will have a a show or a movie or a book that talks about the debate community accurately. Or you know what, Kyle, why don't we make one? Like I I remember we talk about this a lot before. Like we want to make an anime about debate or something. Yeah, we, we were <laughs> like Yeah. We were like, what if um whenever someone like makes a really good rebuttal, we could visualize it as like so someone like pulling a bowstring and then like Oh, it's so tense right now. It's like, oh, the tension has been released. Oh no, the, the argument has been destroyed. Like Kaguya-sama, like Love is War. Yeah, yeah, basically something like that. So yeah, so thank you so much, Charlie, for that interesting take on Candy Jar. Makes me want to watch the movie again. And if you haven't seen it, as a debater, just watch it. Like, you don't need to love it. But it's like the closest we're going to get so far into popular media. So might as well... You know, just take it, absorb it, hate it, love it. It's up to you, you know? It's just a story about us, so decide how you want to take it. Yeah, so with that, let's move on to the next member of the Debate the Beans. Um, who's the one who's next? Because um, we're doing this alphabetically, so like after C, there is... J. <laughs> no, you're missing a oh, bunch no. of letters. Okay, yeah, I missed a bunch of letters. The next one is J. <laughs> Yeah, Jay. So we're going to hear Jay's introduction now. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay. I'm a finance and management student, and I'm also the chief marketing officer for Debatable. And I've done some tech director stuff with Debatable as well. Uh, The reason why I used to be very into and why I used to really love debate was because you could find your group of nerds that would just geek out about a certain topic like economics 
and you'd really get to know them aside from the competitive stuff which makes debate toxic i think that's why a lot of people are staying in debate uh my life's motto is from the very profound and very poetic doing the rock johnson it's about drive it's about power we stay hungry we devour put in the work put in the hours and take what's ours let's go i can't believe this <laughs> i can't believe this i just made a joke <laughs> i just said a joke earlier about how charlie is just like it's no it's about drive it's about power and then jason it i think it's just fate that like it was charlie and then it was jay yeah so i think they have similar motos like whatever like super fun um so the story of how i met jay i met jay through our previous work at outspoken shout out to us outspoken another great philippine initiative for debate education we used to work for outspoken and jay and i um were super close there basically jay's role was to support me um like basically like an assistant role though i never called it that um Jay would always wake up at 8 a.m. because they found out I woke up at 8 a.m. and they'd message me first thing in the morning asking, hey, Nino, what do you need me to do today? And like, Jay is just super on point. They are unstoppable. So, Jay, thank you for joining our team. You're amazing. Um, Get your life together, however, outside of debate and work fronts. And I Laval. say that as a friend. <laughs> but you know, like we all we all have our stuff, so that's it. Um, Jay's topic for today is kind of interesting. It's about super teams in sports and how they are, you know, not that great. Um, the word they yeah. put here is they are, but I will censor that word. They are not that great. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. So, um, Jay's work as like the marketing officer for Debatable is so important because, um. We always had trouble with the the social media side of things because we're often so busy and we can't really understand. We don't really understand this techie world where, you know, we we sort of need to find out what's the optimal time to post certain things and like how do we expand our reach and stuff. So Jay has been super helpful in like helping us understand that side of like this world of posting stuff more often and trying to get as many people like listening and into debate as possible so that is why like we're so lucky actually we're actually so lucky to have jay postrado in our team like i cannot even put words to the amount of gratitude that i have for this person but yeah so aside from that like their amazing abilities to analyze social media statistics and data and whatnot. Actually, they were so happy, like staring at basically walls of numbers. Um, they're also very much into sports and very much into international relations, which is like probably the two topics that people are least likely to say are their favorites alongside economics. So, um, I'm I'm going to learn a lot from this. <laughs> this um spiel that that jay prepared for us same same so let's play it yeah and the topic that i'm going to talk about today is surprise surprise man in the room sports specifically my deep-seated hatred 
for super teams that are growing in sports, which this allows a lot of individuals from being able to grow. This allows a lot of small market teams to be able to find their audiences. And more than that, uh, how it generally harms competition in the sports as a whole. Uh, so the first thing we have to discuss is what are super teams? What do they look like and how they might be not that good in general? Uh, so what a super team basically is, is when a rich billionaire owner of a sports franchise, let's say the Los Angeles Lakers, let's say the Brooklyn Nets, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, are able to sign multiple players that are of really high caliber or that these players have really huge clout and at that point they're able to keep them. So what this means is for the company or for the franchise they are able to pay these players wages but more than that they also pay luxury taxes which means that in excess because they have multiple star level players that they have to sustain and they're keeping them away from other teams they have to pay a certain amount of a fine that's what the luxury tax is and since these billionaire players probably are rich they could just stomach that because you know they have the excess money to be able to do so right so what do these super teams look like right now more notably, this could look like the Brooklyn Nets, how they're able to sign Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, uh, Paul Millsap, how they're able to sign Marcus Aldridge. I can go on and on. It's the Brooklyn Nets, uh, Los Angeles Lakers, how they're able to sign LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook. This also can go to the NFL with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, specifically talking about Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown, and a lot of other sporting. So at large, what we're talking about are large multinational corporations that are able to literally just buy out the reason why people are watching sports for all-star caliber players. And why this is therefore harm the sport in general. So first, we're going to talk about small market teams. Uh, generally, the way small market teams are described in layman's term are these are teams that basically just have to rely on drafting. They have to rely on the skills of players because not a lot of all-stars want to compete for these low-level teams because they're not going to get seen, they're not going to get watched, they're not going to get as enough clout in social media and stuff like that. So these teams could look like Milwaukee. These teams could look like maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, like Toronto, maybe. So the reason why that's particularly bad for them is because they are not able to get as much ticket revenue or they're not as uh, watched well. They don't get as much TV deals, for instance, such that their team is able to get uh, better equipment, such that their team is able to grow more and stuff like that. Uh, the reason why I really, really don't like super teams is because often a lot of teams are uh, SME funded or even uh, community funded. So one of my favorite teams is the Green Bay Packers. The Green Bay Packers of the NFL, as my, most of you might not know, is that they're community owned. The community literally pays the team and they don't earn as much profit 
know, what they do is just they give off their own money such that the team is able to survive, for instance. And they're still able to train in high-quality players. They're still able to win a Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers is still able to win an NFL MVP. So for me, those teams really stick out the most because those teams are where the sport lives. Because the people get to watch them. People would voluntarily try to skip a meal so that they're able to literally just watch the NFL and the Green Bay Packers play. Uh, the reason why super teams in return hurt them is because super teams would naturally retract those TV deals such that those TV deals go to places like New York, the Madison Square Garden, such that they go to Staples Center in Los Angeles, for instance. Uh, the reason why that's particularly harmful is because rather than these people who are working really hard, sacrificing a lot, for instance, rather than them being able to get those TV deals, those ad revenues, or them, uh, or just some multinational support, they're unlikely to be able to do that because a lot of people would just like to watch Kevin Durant play with James Harden, with Kyrie Irving, and more than that. So surface level fans, which are let's admit, most of the fans in sports would naturally gravitate to this because they see, whoa, it's literally all-star week and every weekend or every game when you watch the Brooklyn Nets, when you watch the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And that's a certain form of excitement that you would not be able to see uh, with small market teams anymore because oftentimes, watch time is a zero-sum. Not a lot of people get to just sacrifice a lot of their time to watch sports. Often, the average person would watch maybe two games uh, per week, and that's not very good for these teams because they have to naturally compete for those demographics. So more than that, so it's literally killing the small market teams. Uh, secondly, it doesn't make the sport enjoyable because you realize that what makes an all-star or what makes a superstar in a team is that they're able to play with their own fluidity. They are able to showcase their own skill. But when you put them on the same team, on the same court with the same ball, they have to share it. And oftentimes, these players regress. These players are not go, like su succeeding. They don't win championships. An example of this would be the Houston Rockets with Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, and uh, Scottie Pippen. And oftentimes, the sport just becomes dull and boring to watch. So super teams often do this because a lot of the times these players just want money and cash grabs, but what they do in return is hurt small market teams, hurt very passionate uh, individuals who want to watch the sport. And that's just generally not good for the sport. So yeah, that's my rant on super teams, why they probably should not exist, and why the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, or maybe the handball, association of the world should also try to put a leash on these things because it's just not enjoyable to watch anymore thanks have a nice day everyone yeah so if anyone was curious as to like how a debater could know so much about sports um the first thing is that we have to stop seeing debaters as some sort of monolith and i i, I learned that lesson only very recently because I have like understood the debate community to go like univers almost universally go like uh sports I don't know so much about sports but like just in the past year I have seen so many people who are so interested in sports from the debate community it's not just like 
I, I dabble in it. <laughs> They're just like, they tweet regularly about it. I'm just like, wow. But what's very special about Jay was that they used to be a sports writer. So that's like two reasons why their work is just so amazing. Um, The first one is that they are able to communicate like ideas that we don't really understand like Nina and I as people who are not super into sports um in ways that are accessible to a wide wider audience that even we are are used to and secondly um it is actually because of their writing background that we reached out to them and asked them um hey do you want to write um a weekly episode for us where we talk about like what happened this week um that recap that matter loading with Nina and Kyle thing that we did last year we are going to do that again this year sigur after debatable open 2022 but yeah that's all because of Jay um we honestly couldn't have done any of those matter loading episodes without Jay's help so going to now the actual content of the presentation or spiel that Jay gave. It's interesting because most of the time you barely think about how, you know, big league sports affects like the the small market ones. So I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, I think this applies outside of sports as well. Like our obsession with the all-stars, our obsession with the big names and how it seems that the trading culture in sports affects how we appreciate how the game is played overall, right? And I think if you want to apply it to debate, it's also a thing here. Uh, I don't want to go into specifics because that's like gossip culture already. But it does happen as well, right? The trading happens. Um, recruitment is a thing. It seems that special attention is given to certain people. And I say this as someone who has both been on the side that benefited from it and has been at a disadvantage from it, right? So I think in sports as well, it's interesting in a debate sense because you think, you know, at least most debaters think that it doesn't affect us. But as you should all know, sports is a big part of our culture. It's a part of people's identities even. So understanding how it works internally and what the systems are also tells you how people respond, how people live their lives because of it, and how people's days might be shaped because of certain things. Like, as Jay mentioned, some people skip meals just to watch certain teams play, right? And it seems so fascinating to me that people would go to that extent. And it's all manufactured by, you know, people way up that decide who goes where, what time slots are taken. And I'm not sure if this is a debate motion. And Jay, if it isn't, I think it should be. And, you know, like, I want to hear more about it. But I will not understand it, to be honest, Jay. <laughs> but, you know, I want to hear more about it because I, I'm fascinated with how it relates to everything else that goes on in the world. I just don't know the names that you are citing and the specific themes you are saying. But I do appreciate the spirit. I'll be honest about that. <laughs> I like thinking about um super teams and like our sort of obsession with super teams in the same way that I imagine our sort of obsession with Avengers and like superheroes ha- has come to be because 
like very recently with Endgame from 2019 and all the way up to today with the like the multiverse stuff in the MCU, we really, really want our superheroes to make crossovers, right? Like, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, the Human Torch, like, teams up with Captain America because they're both played by the by Chris Evans, right? Um, so I feel like that is where a lot of these people are coming from. Like, they are real-life superheroes, um, athletes, because they're capable of doing things that the regular person just cannot imagine doing, um, which is why we always think, like, what if you get, like, the best of the best of the best and put them into one team? That would be super amazing. Um, just, like, any comic book artist's dream would be, like, you know, putting all these really cool characters together. Um, and speaking of artists, <laughs> comic book artists, artists, let's talk about Jill, who is the next uh, member of the Debate of Beans that you wanted to talk about. Unfortunately, because of some um, personal circumstances, they weren't able to give us um, the usual intro and spiel. But if you follow Debatable for any amount of time, even if you're just listening to this episode, you are already familiar with the incredible work that Jill has been able to create for us at Debatable um, because they are the publicity um, officer for, for Debatable in the sense that, you know, all of the artistic things that we're not capable of doing, generally speaking, Jill is the one who's working on that. Like, all the art, that's Jill. Yeah, if you see our podcast cover, that's Jill. Like Jill is the first person we've ever collaborated with because we've collaborated with them before the podcast was even launched. So we asked them for the podcast cover. And then after that, when Debatable InterVarsity 2021 was launched, we asked them to be the person to make our publicity material, like the poster, the phase pubs, like every other pub that's needed. They also did the same for Debatable Open. And now they're doing it for Debatable uh, Open 2022. And again, I'm plugging it. Phase 1 is open. So if you want to sign up, you should do that there. If you want to know more about it, you can visit our pages at Podcast Debatable. Um, or send us an email, actually, at podcastdebatable at gmail.com. Or visit our Facebook page, Debatable with Nina and Kyle. Or you can visit our Twitter, PodcastDBTVL, to find out more about the event. But anyway... So Jill is amazing. Jill actually used to be our student when we taught at St. Paul. Um, and wow, that makes me feel very old, Kyle. Like we were there since they were in high school and now they're in college. They're still in our lives. That was six years we... ago, right? Yeah, or like something. Six or five maybe, years ago. Yeah, six, five, maybe even seven. I'm not sure. But like they've been a student of mine since forever. And Having them as a partner now is so surreal to me. Um, so Jill, if you're listening, we're so happy that we got to see you grow. Well, I'm getting sentimental on the podcast, sentimental on Maine. But basically, I'm very happy that I get to work with Jill and that, you know, artists get to have the limelight at a lot of like places here in Debatable. Like we want to feature artists as much as we can and compensate them well. And I'm happy that Kyle and I have a platform that we're finally able to do that. So we like hiring different artists to be able to sort of 
give back to them, give them an opportunity to shine. And, you know, as a result, we also get kick-ass like, posters and kick-ass podcast covers. If you see them cycle through different like phases, like our Christmas ones and whatever, you can thank Jill because they gave me all the elements that I get to experiment with. Um, but yes, Jill is not able to join us today. Um, Kyle, do you know what their topic was supposed to be about? Um, their topic was supposed to be about. Hold on, I was saying it was about like Disney or something. No, that's you. You like Disney? No, no, <laughs> that's a different. <laughs> that's a different Kyle thing. Mm-hmm. Um, their thing was about uh feminism. Feminism in, in Disney movies, yeah. No, not Disney movies. It's just feminism in villainesses and historical fantasy fictions. I'm not sure why your mind instantly went to Disney, Kyle. It's very telling, but <laughs> when you say fantasy, the first thing that comes to your mind is Disney. But yeah, it's just about feminism in the villains of different fantasy genres. I think it's super interesting. I want to interview Jill for this one day. Um, sadly, they didn't get to be introduced for this. Yeah, maybe not um, like a future episode you could make. <laughs> we can actually make this an entire thing. Yeah, we can make it an entire episode. So anyway, let's do that for Jill. Um, but yeah, this this is Jill. We'd like to introduce you to them. You you're already familiar with their work. They need no introduction. They speak with their art. So thank you, Jill, for being part of the team. Very happy to have you here. The next person, um, is Nico Bombeo. Uh, if you've been following Debatable for a while, you know Miko. They've been on the show twice already. One for a motion contributor stint that they did for Debatable. Was it Debatable Open or Debatable InterVarsity? I think it was InterVarsity, right, Kyle? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Debatable IV. Yeah, so Debatable IV, they were a motion contributor, and then they made another episode with us on a particular motion. Um. So I'm really happy that they're part of the team. So the story of how I met Nico this time is also through Outspoken. Um, we worked together there. We were co-coaches. Um, and then Nico and I just became friends. I'm not sure how to explain it, but we just connected. Oh, no, I didn't meet, meet Nico through work. We met through this time I was Agecore. Um, I think it was VMDC. And Nico and I were uh, hanging out. And Nico had this amazing tendency to guess what the next theme of the tournament was going to be. And I was Agecore, so I can't react, right? I can't give any clues. But Nico was just like on point with their psychic mind, reading my movements. And like I had half a mind to avoid them for the rest of the tournament because I felt like I was like breaking some ethical code even if I wasn't doing anything because Nico was just that good at reading my mind. Miko got the finals that year. <laughs> Not because of me, I promise. They're just really that good. And then after that, we haven't really spoken until, you know, we got to work together online. And then one thing led to another, and we invited Miko to be on our team. And that's how I know Miko. Um, you met Miko before Debatable or only through Debatable Initiatives? Um, Actually... I've never met Miko. <laughs> I never met them um in real life. So I did oh, no, know yeah. of them. Yeah. So we were actually talking about this the other day and they were telling me that 
I I used to be so intimidated by it. I was like, yeah, I am. But that's because I'm intimidated by everyone. Um, so Miko, since you talked about them, um, just like being able to see into the future, they also have this weird ability to read our presence and pasts. So the thing about Miko as well is they're so good at like tarot readings, fortune tellings, and stuff like that. And it's kind of scary sometimes, you know? Um, so Miko's role in our team is the chief talent officer, which means that they're, first of all, they're very talented. Like if you've ever heard them sing, um, it's really cool. But second, I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, but, but what it really means is that um, they basically just take care of the people within the team. So you can think of it as like human resources or HR work. Um, they sort of psychologically profiled us already. Like they gave us a survey already. And every now and then they do like mental health checks. And that was very useful um, when they ended up becoming the tournament director for Magiting Cup um, yeah. because they just had this wonderful ability to sort of under be super understanding about like where different people are coming from, their own personal circumstances. And that's a really great thing that you want for a leader. Yeah. So what what is Miko going to talk about today? Introduce themselves first and then we can talk about their oh, yeah, very sorry. interesting topic. Like oh. they have a they have a very interesting topic, but let's listen to them introduce themselves. Hello, everybody. Uh, you might know me from a few other Debatable episodes, but I'm Miko Pombeo. I'm the Chief Talent Officer for Debatable. And basically what I do is I make sure that everyone is happy. I make sure that things are okay. And I also um, uh, will scout talents for Debatable in the near future um, when we do scale and when we need more people. So you'll be seeing a lot of me if you have plans on joining the Debatable team. Uh, it's basically like an HR job as well. So I just make sure that everything within the um, organization, within the team is all good and that there are no tensions and that everyone is happy. The reason why I love debate is because it allows for people to talk about a lot of serious things in a way that is safe, in a way where they don't have to fear ridicule or judgment. And I really love how people are able to share their ideas um, regardless of their skill level, regardless of where they come from or what institution they belong to. And debate is really just an environment where people are allowed to grow and discover things about themselves as well. My motto in life would probably be something that I heard from a YouTube channel called Yes Theory, um, and it's seek discomfort, because basically growth is a result of discomfort. You can never grow or you can never develop in places where you are comfortable. So always look for opportunities where you are in discomfort that challenges you to grow and that challenges you to become a better person as well. Yeah. So their topic today is very interesting. Um, it's about being marupok. <laughs> uh, how would you describe being marupok in English, Kyle, for our non-Filipino viewers? I, I think, like, the closest term that you could get to explain what Marupok is would be basically, like, simp. But, like, what from what I understand, Miko, um, Miko has, like, a defense of being Marupok. So, maybe it's different from being a simp. Maybe there's, like, a more specific definition. 
Um, but like, basically in my head, you know, it's basically like same thing. Or maybe like feeling very deeply for a person. Yeah, something like that. Okay, okay. Let's give it a listen and discover what being marupok is all about. But before that, Kyle, do you consider yourself a marupok person? <laughs> um, y- you know me, so you know that I, I am very marupok. Um, yeah, say, uh, like, I don't know what it means, so I can't I can't really say if you are. That's why I'm asking if you are. No, remember the time when Oh I never mind, had... yeah. You are a simp. Yeah, like before you dated me, you were a major simp for other people. Yeah, like, so like definition. I, I would have plans, like actual plans for myself, and I'd be like I would drop them. <laughs> I would just drop them without really caring about like my friends, <laughs> I'm sorry, Nina, because you were that particular friend. But like, I, I ditch people um because the people that I simp for just go like, "Hey, do you want to watch this movie with me?" And I'd be like, "Well, yeah, I have nothing planned." <laughs> How dare <laughs> you? I'd be like playing with my fingers, and I'd be like, "Yeah, I've got nothing planned." <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's listen to Miko's spiel. Let's see how it goes. Okay, so the topic that I'll be talking about for this episode is the philosophy of being marupok. And for our foreign listeners out there, marupok is a Tagalog word which basically means that you have a greater inclination to falling in love or to romantic feelings than a regular person is. You're more inclined to fall for a person or to have romantic feelings for a person even when that person only does the bare minimum, like it's just a generally kind or okay person and stuff like that. And the reason why I chose this topic is because being marupok gets a very bad rap within society or within the community. Because people are like, oh, but you're putting yourself up to like more disappointment or you're setting yourself up for disappointment in the future or you're just constantly hurting yourself and you're falling for people who might not like you back or might not be interested in you in that way. And while those statements have some truth within them, I think it's also important to assess why people are marupok to begin with, why people have an inclination to just fall in love, not on a whim, but on a on a scale that is easier in comparison to everyone else within society as well. So the first thing that I want to highlight is how being marupok is a manifestation of how you as an individual is just a generally loving person. Because the people who tend to be marupok, like myself, usually have a lot of experiences that might have deprived them or might have limited the amount of affection or care that they received in the past. Or maybe they're just the type of people whose love languages involve investing heavily in the people that they are attracted to or that they are attached to. Which means that these are generally people that have a deep connection with romance, a deep connection with love. Uh, It might even be an after effect of like being a hopeless romantic, for example. And it's these types of things that are usually looked over when you look at people or when people ridicule those who are marupok, those who are hopeless romantics. Because they think that the way that people perceive love, the way that people perceive romance is in a way detrimental to their stability. But for me personally, the reason why I am Marupok is because 
I appreciate the way that people interact with each other, especially when they care heavily or care intensely about a certain individual. So for example, if you have a significant other, if you have a partner or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're more able to convey your emotions and you're more able to establish how you feel even when that relationship is happening or even in instances where that relationship has rocky moments. And I think that's also part of the beauty of being Maropok, right? You're able to communicate effectively because you feel things so deeply. You understand the intensity of your emotions. You and you understand the impacts of your actions as well. And that allows you to communicate those emotions properly to the person that you are in a relationship with or even someone that you have a crush on. Now, as with all things, being Marupok isn't all good, right? I'm not trying to create propaganda for Marupokness or being someone who is easily like enticed into a relationship or enticed by a different individual or easily attracted to other people as well. Um, it's very important to guard your heart, especially when you know that you are Marupok because um, we have a tendency or we have a very large inclination to bear our soul to the people that we fall in love with. Um, my version of that is that I like to make playlists for the people that I like. Uh, so if you follow me on Spotify, none of them are on private, by the way. If you follow me on Spotify, you'll see a lot of playlists with uh, very weird titles. Like one of them is 1.43am, the other is Lovers Stay the Night, and stuff like that, where I just put songs that remind me of that person or songs that I'd like to dedicate to that person as well. And I feel like that's a good translation of what I feel, um, especially because I am a very musical person. Uh, it's a great way to convey the emotions that I feel for a certain individual and encapsulate it in a list of songs or a playlist that um, they can listen to and hopefully remember me when they listen to it as well. And, you know, it's not all good. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like, I definitely had moments where I did fall for the wrong person, where I did make playlists for the person who hurt me the most. But I think that that's part of the process. I would even say that people who are Marupok are significantly more able to grow as individuals in terms of romance because of the way that they feel things. So when things go... Um, badly or things go south for these individuals, they're more likely to process these emotions properly in a way that makes them feel everything and in a way that makes them understand what went wrong even in the situation or in the relationship. Sure, it can last a long time. Like I remember it took me four or five months to move on from this guy that I liked way back in December 2020. But in the grand scheme of things, I am in a better place because after those four months, I was able to reconcile my emotions for that person. And I was able to like assess why this person wasn't good for me. So it also allows you to have a perspective as to what is beneficial for you in a relationship. As to what benefits you as an individual in terms of your growth. In terms of what your needs are within a relationship as well. That isn't to say that Marupok people have an easier time in relationships. Sometimes we do sacrifice a lot of things. We make a lot of compromises because we are so in love with this person or we are so attached to this person that we think that we're willing to like wait for uh, for months before um like dating them or getting that official label or maybe even just like tolerating um 
a few things that they do that are negative or detrimental because we are attracted to them or because we think that we can quote unquote fix them. And those are definitely mistakes that I have personally made in my life. So for those who are listening and for those who are Marupok as well, uh, please don't be like me. Please be smarter about who you fall in love with. But in the grand scheme of things, again, it's the best way to understand as well um, what you really desire out of a relationship each individual that you fall for and this is true for everyone as well um there are lessons that have to be learned from that person and sometimes even though that person isn't the one who's meant to be or isn't supposed to be in your life for a long time the lessons that you learn from them are lessons that will stay with you and help you grow that was heavy (laughs) that's all i have to say yeah i mean you can really see that they were a psych major, so you can really see it in their spiel, like very perceptive, very understanding, very loving. And what I really appreciated it about it is um the amount of introspection that they were able to um do. And I remember I, I was talking to Kla before, um, and they were asking me for help um understanding how to, you know, build some of these arguments that do a lot about feelings. And my main advice was, like, try to introspect, like, put yourself in their shoes and then make the introspection and then sort of explain, like, try to put into words things that you already understand. Like, Mm. a lot of these things, like, loving another person or not loving another person or being scared or being anxious about something, those are already things that you really understand. The problem is you don't know how to put it into words. And that is a, a good practice that you can have if you're debating or if you're a writer or artist. Like, that's basically what we do here in, in debates. Like, you're telling stories, and that could be like stories of other people, of countries, but it can also be your own story or the story of someone who's close to you. And that's something I super appreciate in like the style that. Miko has when they when they debate and when they think about like these different topics because to be honest this could be a debate motion right this could be like um this house supports or celebrates or this house would be marupok right i can imagine that um so i guess i want to talk about now the content of it because i am very practical as a person you know this Kyle and i think by now the audience should know I'm a very pragmatic person. So my feelings usually take the back seat. I usually assess things like a debate. Like I am your stereotypical debater that assesses situations with pros and cons that tries to make decisions based on which side outweighs the other. I am your stereotypical person that makes to-do lists and checklists about things. So, this topic is kind of hard for me to grasp. Like, being marupok or having your emotions on your sleeves. And I think that's something I need to work on. Because it's not that I personally give it a bad rep. It's just I don't know how to apply it without overdoing it. And I'm not sure what your stance here is, Kyle. But I do have this uh, belief that there's also such a thing as giving yourself too much, right? Like, you end up becoming a, a doormat or you end up like 
feeling things too much to the point that you leave yourself vulnerable and open to attack. Or maybe that's just because I'm a woman and I've been in situations where I've been um, taken advantage of because of that. Uh, so, like, I know this is heavy, but, like, this is something that needs to come up, right? Because a lot of women do feel that particular way about things. And I'm not sure if there is a dynamic here about, um, you know, like, whether or not you are just inclined to be a certain way or if it's a behavior that can be learned. But if it is a behavior that can be learned, I do hope I learn it one day. But what's your take on it? Well, I think, like, there obviously needs to be a balance there, right? Because, um, as you said, you can be a doormat. And we have frequently talked about how I was at some points, actually a lot of points, that kind of doormat. And just a few episodes ago, it might have been last episode, actually, where I was talking about, like, the nature of abuse, where um, for a lot of people, a lot of cases, um, abusers tend to use traits that you are the most proud about within yourself, like the idea that you never give up on a person, you always try to understand them. Traits that you find to be very good, very noble, very even heroic sometimes. and they can be turned against you. They can be used to hurt you, right? So I don't think that, you know, as as Miko said, you should still be smart about it. But it doesn't mean that you should forego the idea of being Marupok in general because my belief um, is that um, if you are opening yourself up to, you know, that kind of, um, relationship that kind of vulnerability you are also opening yourself up to some sort of pain so it is necessarily a part of that you taking that risk um so it is just a matter of like you should not be completely closed off from the possibility of get of taking that risk but at the same time you shouldn't be you know you shouldn't just like see a bunch of red flags and go like, yeah, I'm willing to take the risk, right? There has to be a reason why. Um, so in a sense, I guess what I'm saying is like, let's find a balance between Miko and I and your approach. Like for sure, there is something beyond the pros and cons that, you know, that something that transcends that. That See, I tell cannot you, read. <laughs> yeah, that tell you that a relationship is worth it or not. But at the same time, right, you should not just like forego this pros and cons, like, right? Um, yeah. Looking yeah. <laughs> deep, no. Yeah, it is that time. It is. It is like deep talk hours. I mean, yeah. Kyle. Just, just for everyone's knowledge, we are recording this, and it's currently like one a.m. Almost one a.m. It's twelve thirty. It's like the deep talk hours. So I hope you are still with us and having fun. The next person we'd want to introduce is Thea Madrillejo. So Thea and I have been... Actually, the three of us have been together in UPDS. So they're, um, we met in the UP Debate Society. They are also known in the Philippines as the Tab Goddess. And if you don't know who they are, you've probably been in a tournament where they've been at, right? So if you're a Philippine debater, if you've had someone nagging you about ballots, that was probably Thea. Uh, 
and they they are whiz at tech because they help the coding of Tabber. They do the back end things of Tabber. They are learning how to use coding software. I don't know the terms, right? Um, <laughs> but that's why we got there because we need someone who can be our chief digital officer, and that's their main role, right? They handle the tabs during our tournaments, but they're also working on creating a system. Actually, like little spoiler alert, we're we're planning on launching a website soon, right? And they are in charge of coding that so that we can have all our episodes there. We can have premium content there. We can have links to our tournaments there as well. And basically, it's a big project that might launch in the distant future. Like, I'm not sure because everyone's busy now with COVID and everything. So it's going to be a future project. But they are in charge of that. They're also just a, a sweet and amazing person. Um. They are feisty as well. Like if you've ever been in a tournament and you have not submitted ballots or are causing a delay, you have faced their wrath. So you know who Thea is. Um, you should know who they are. But I think we should leave it to Thea to introduce themselves. Uh, what do you think, Kyle? <laughs> yeah. Why <laughs> did you throw it to me? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe you had something to say about Thea. Like how did you meet Thea? Um, yeah. The UV debates. We're not. We're not. We're somewhere. Yeah, okay. I can't. I can't. I can't extend for you here, man. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I, I guess what I would say is you don't like, need to extend. <laughs> okay, let's just to play. expound okay. on what you said. No, <laughs> our, our good friend. <laughs> You're gonna say their middle name as an ex- as an extension. Anyway, let's play their intro. Hi everyone, my name is Thea. I'm Thea Manrulejo. I'm the Chief Digital Officer of Debatable, which basically means that I handle the technical and like website-y aspect of Debatable. A lot of things coming there, maybe in the next few months or so, I can't really say. But uh, yeah, I like debating because um, it's kind of an escape, I guess. It's more of like how I can say things and convey my message to people in the most efficient way possible and talk about things that I wouldn't get to normally talk about with other people. Like, where would I talk about the Chinese economy? Or where else would I talk about NFT's impact on the modern art market, if not in competitive debating? And my life motto would actually be, stick around and find out. Oh wow! That was so scary. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah I mean, when I when I said Thea was feisty, like I didn't know the extent until that outro. She just like deadpan ended it there. I guess. Oh yeah, for for the people who have not suffered Thea's wrath, you know, <laughs> round and find out. Yeah. So the thing about Thea is, um, I just want to hype them up a little bit. Wow, you I have an extension think, now. I don't think that there is a single person active in the Philippine debate community who has done more for tabbing than Thea Madrilejo. I don't think that there's a single active person. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I mean, there are a few people catching up to Thea's legacy, but as of now, they are still tab goddess, right? Yeah, so I think the... I think it's kind of interesting, like the... The juxtaposition, if you if, um, what what am I saying? I think it's interesting how 
um, the topic that they chose for their spiel sort of juxt- can be juxtaposed with their general like demeanor, which is um, like they have a lot going on, but they're very interested in things like minimalism. And I, I think the spiel that Thea has for us is a critique on like what minimalism is so it might actually be a metaphor for her entire being actually yeah let's let's ah. around and find out yeah let's go hi everyone it's Thea again so i'm gonna talk about the m- movement called minimalism so it's not so related just a little bit to the art movement but i want to talk about the simple intentional lifestyle movement of minimalism and the reason why I chose this topic was I actually read a book about it. I've actually been consciously practicing minimalism for over a year or so until I read the book. And the book is called The Longing for Less by Kyle Cheka. And it was really interesting. I was really into minimalism before the pandemic started. And I got to practice it because I had all this free time and the lockdown made it easier for me to shift my practices consciously. But as we all know, this is going to be like, five to seven minutes of a rant about minimalism and that book in particular. So sit tight, everyone, and I'll start my rant slash speech topic presentation thing in three, two, one. So hi, guys, I'm going to talk about what minimalism is. So first, I'm just going to briefly define it, right? So minimalism is a lifestyle movement geared towards simple, intentional lifestyles, and it's characterized by two main things, right? So the first is avoiding overconsumption of goods and products, and second is the pursuit of intentional living. I'll get more into how these things look like in a little bit, but I want to talk about how the rise of minimalism came about, especially in modern pop culture. So we saw an interest peak in pop culture around probably 2010, 2012, when there were a lot of lifestyle and productivity bloggers talking about minimalism. So for example, Joshua Becker or the minimalists who released a documentary and a set of essays and started this entire career tour where they talk to people about the impacts and the benefits of minimalism around 2012 or so and as you may know like the KonMari method or you know Marie Kondo is a classic tenant of minimalism with her decluttering strategy and anyone you've ever seen on YouTube read in a book or listened to in a podcast and they're a productivity or a lifestyle blogger, they've probably mentioned some tenets of minimalism, right? So what does minimalism look like? So it looks like a few things. So first is the decluttering aspect, which I think everyone is more or less familiar with when it comes to the Conmary method, which like really exploded in popularity perhaps a year or two before. I'm, Yeah, it's, it's been a long year period for us and basically decluttering aside from that there's also a tendency for clean visually empty spaces so this is where we kind of tie in with the art movement of minimalism a little bit because when you look at the hashtags for minimalism they're kind of interspersed with what is perceived to be for example minimalist art or minimalist sorry spaces and it kind of interplays as well with how we perceive minimalism to be and what other classic aspiration of what minimalism looks like is not neutral colorways like for example choosing black gray maybe some browns a little bit of beige but generally basic 
neutral colorways that are easy to blend with other people. And here are the benefits that people talk about minimalism. So, for example, the first benefit that people claim towards minimalism is the fact that you get people to reassess mindless spending and overconsumption. So this is the biggest takeaway that I personally had with minimalism, that it induced the state where you had to consciously assess whether or not something was good or something was helpful to you or not. So is this something that sparks joy or is this something that gives me happiness and something like that? And this would be the deciding factor whether or not you'd buy it, which I felt was a really important mindset to have, especially in the era of Shopee and Lazada or other online shopping platforms where all we ever wanted was just like to cram ourselves in our houses full of random stuff that we don't actually need. The second benefit that people generally um, ascertain the minimalism is how it sparked an entire wave of decluttering. I can list roughly three or four startups that are simply interested in the act of people decluttering and that's their entire business model. Like Companies will ask you to declutter and they'll take away your stuff for free and then they'll make use of it somehow, right? I actually worked and interned for one of those startups really briefly, and I'd rather not disclose which one it was. And the last benefit people commonly uh, ascertain towards minimalism is how it introduced the concept of simple living, which is without the excess and determining what makes you happy. So this is where you eliminate the stuff that doesn't give you joy or this is where you remove factors in your life that cause you unnecessary stress and pain. This is where you go towards a truly minimalist and truly happy life, right? If you look at the history of minimalism, however, what you have to understand is history, uh, the history of minimalism isn't just associated with the art movement. If we look at it as a lifestyle movement, as a lifestyle or a thought movement, it actually predates back as early as the ancient Greeks with the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. So I think some of you may be familiar with Stoicism, and it's a really interesting deep dive towards um, lifestyles and like thought movements. So I'd suggest y'all check that out if you want to learn more about Stoicism. I'm not really a Stoicist, so that's not in the cards for me. But, you know, a lot of notable figures, like, for example, Seneca or St. Francis of Assisi, and even, like, Henry Walden Thoreau was a lot was one of those people who were Stoicists and actively campaigned for minimalist tendencies, right? And this is where I get to the book, and this is where I probably start to get a little ranty because what you have to notice is that so far it looks good right so far so good okay minimalism is cool minimalism is great but there's one thing we're disregarding about the nuance of minimalism specifically because when we talk about minimalism nobody really talks about how minimalism is more or less an individual effort how it doesn't really transcend to large-scale impact right and i think this is one thing that the book raised for me and was never able to get out of my head because at this this point in time you're thinking okay i can live simply i can live intentionally what now how does my personal or my individual actions scale to actually help others or how does it you know transcend the environmental and economic issues that we're facing the short answer is it actually doesn't if you look at it the entire premise of the book of longing for less by kyle cheka is just simply saying that minimalism is an escapist fantasy or maybe just escapism you know an ideological escape for those who could not deal with the ramifications of capitalism so the ramifications of capitalism are fairly simple right overconsumption the 
continuous and enduring need for you to accumulate capital so you can afford all the cool things in life and all the cool things that other people get to enjoy but you somehow don't get to enjoy. But this becomes a means for us to understand or try to come to terms with the fact that not all of us are born into the same levels of privilege or the same levels of access that other people have, which is pretty interesting if not for the fact that minimalism in itself since it's more or less an internet thought movement, kind of relies on the concept of curated authenticity. And that's a really interesting um, concept. And the reason why I think this is pretty cool is because curated authenticity more or less relies on the idea that we're just basically trimming ourselves down and we're just making the best versions of ourselves on the internet and on social media, which is a pretty big thought. But, you know, I'm around seven minutes, so I'm going to end my rant here. Thank you all for listening to me rant about minimalism. Are you a minimalist? I didn't notice it was seven minutes already. I, I was having so much fun listening to that. I I, I agree. It was cor- sort of ranty, but in a really, really good way. I was like, yeah, it is just an, an escapist fantasy. But yeah. as to your question, Nina, as to whether I'm a minimalist, absolutely not. I, I'm not a minimalist. Although for a very, very long time, I have wanted to be like, um, I just haven't gotten the opportunity, and maybe now I wouldn't want to be a minimalist, to be honest. It's more like an aesthetic, you know, like minimalism now. Um, when I think about it, it's more of an aesthetic because the pieces that you get to have a minimalist lifestyle—they're not cheap either, right? Like they're very expensive as well. So it is sort of like a make-believe of rich people to be minimalist. Or at least that's <laughs> that's how I see it. But I understand Thea's uh, takeaways as well from the book. And I'm in- really interested in reading that book now. Like, Thea, if you're listening, I do want a copy if you have an ebook or something. Or if you have the physical version, I'd love to read it. But personally, I'm a maximalist. <laughs> like, if there's a term for it, like, if you've seen my desk, there is no space that isn't covered with tech or crystals or just knickknacks. And, you know, that sparks joy for me. So I guess everyone's different. Minimalism might be your cup of tea. But if it is, right, I think you have to start questioning, is it because you truly desire to consume less? Or is it still very capitalistic like what Thea is proposing? Yeah, the thing about the thing about minimalism, a lot of people um, have now been saying that it is actually just available for the privileged. So there was some analysis before comparing like hoarding behaviors between people who are very rich and people who are more impoverished. So the finding there, if I'm not mistaken, was that if you are less privileged, economically speaking, you are more likely to hoard because if you're going to give something up, you're more likely to think of things like, I don't know when the next time I will be able to afford this um, or I don't know when the next time, uh, I don't know the next time that I'll be able to get something like this again. You know, so as opposed to if you're very privileged, you'd go like, mm, if I need this again in the future, I'll be able to buy it. Like, of course, that's not what you think of when you, when you like throw stuff out or if you donate them, you don't go like, I will just get another one of these. But it's much easier for you to 
draw the conclusion that yeah, this doesn't spark joy for me. No, I don't need this anymore. I can just donate it or throw it out. If you had the resources to readily replace it, if you actually do find out that you need it. So there's like people who are less privileged are more likely to think about those things. Yeah, true. I think like I did some decluttering recently, like Kyle knows this. Like I did throw some clothes and I realized a lot of the times I used to hoard my clothes and I used to keep my mom's clothes, but it was because I didn't really have money before to buy my own, right? But now that I'm a little bit more like financially stable, I do have the privilege of being able to look at something and throw it out or donate it. Um, yeah, people are wondering why I don't sell them. Like I, I prefer donating. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. But yeah, I donated my clothes because in my head, I'm like, okay, I can just buy another one of these or something else I like better. And I realized that's such privileged thinking. Um, so it's just a like an application of what Kyle said. And I, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Kyle, have you ever been in a situation where you're decluttering and you 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 know you you easily let things go because you know you have opportunities again to reclaim it? I don't even know the meaning of the word decluttering. Because <laughs> 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 you know, yeah, I'm a very cluttery person. Like you don't see it right now, but I'm surrounded by so much clutter. Like there's an empty glass over there. There's an open book here. Okay, Kyle, that's not being like hoardy though. That's just that's being just being messy. messy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but there's like legitimately a lot of clutter. Like there there are like books over there that I keep around near me because I am going to read them in the near future. So the my thinking is that um it'll be too much of a hassle if I have to like rearrange things like all over again just to take them out again later which is why I, I tend to like keep a bunch of stuff like nearby and that ends up being clutter but that's just like that's just my personal flaws it has nothing to do with the movement of minimalism or maximalism to be honest it's just a personal flaw but i, I do think that you are in a way a maximalist like you enjoy knickknacks like i've seen your room you enjoy collecting figurines and stuff even if, like, minimalists would say they serve no purpose and they should be thrown out. Like, I think that, you know, it sparks joy and that's why it should stay. That's another critique I have of minimalism. Like, it seems very impository of what should spark joy for you. Like, grays and beiges should spark joy. But if they're too colorful and it doesn't fit the particular aesthetic, you're doing it wrong. And I know that's not what they say, but that's how it's practiced and that's how people feel about it. And that's the pressure that people feel once they enter the minimalist movement, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like um, it's more of a functional thing. It's, it's an instrumentalist way of thinking. You know, like, they don't really consciously choose. Like, I think beige or grays or whites are just aesthetically more pleasing to my eye. It's just more of like, you can match them with more things. That's just my thinking. Like, you can just match them with more things. And that's the reason why it's more useful for you to have them around if you're a minimalist. As opposed to if, you, if you're just, like, buying everything that does spark joy. But on the point of maximalism, um, I think there's a reason why certain things spark joy. It's not so much, like, I like the way that it looks. Um, in my case, it is that plus the fact that everything that I put on like my shelf 
has some personal connection to me. Like there's a story behind those things. Um, so I I do have a collection of My Little Pony figures, and I can tell you who gave me each one. I didn't buy a single one of them. That collection was created as a result of a lot of different people thinking about me, um, buying a gift for me. And Nina, you're one of them. You gave me rarity. Um, and you you also gave me um the Ochako figure, the Uraraka Ochako figure, which is on my shelf as well. Um one of my other friends gave me a, a big statue recently of of um Lady Justice. Um so my favorite law books are are placed there next to that statue. It's just like I created a space that is symbolically, you know, a representation of not just me and my own interests, but also my relationships with other people, which is why I have so much of these knickknacks in my room as well. I'm not sure how to wrap this up. Kyle, <laughs> help, please. How, how do we, re- we wrap this up? This has been a very long episode. Yeah, Again, I mean, I- it's episode 100. Like, we introduced the theme. Again, I guess I want to end it by being thankful again, like the previous episode. Because it's it's just so unbelievable to me that we've gotten to this point. Like, 100 episodes. Like, you gave statistics, right? On how long it would take to listen to all of the audio. Like, do you remember it? Yeah, if you, let's say, like, you're Jeff Bezos and you go to the moon. Well, no, Jeff Bezos has not gone to the moon. He's just a millionaire. He's just a billionaire. That goes slightly above orbit and then goes back down. But let's say that one of them goes to the moon. If they start playing the first episode of Debatable when they launch, they would be able to get to the moon, go back to Earth, and then get back to the moon again and still not be able to finish listening to episode 100. That's a lot of episodes. That's a lot of hours. Yeah. (laughs) Um... The the thing about debatable is, at some point, um, maybe people are thinking of it as like we earn from this or that it's a job. Really, no. <laughs> we do it have feels like some, a job. Yeah, it feels it, like a it job. sometimes feels like a job. You know, like we do feel obligated to produce content, but at the very end of it, it is us doing something that we just like doing, for the benefit of a community. Um, and there's really not that big a profit incentive. We do have some income generating activities like Debatable Open 2022, which you can register for now, but it's really just our love for the craft and the community, and we wanted really to give back to it. And this is going to be our fourth year. We're entering our fourth year of um, making this podcast. And really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's our anniversary in March, and then that would be the end of our third year and the beginning of our fourth year doing this podcast. So we have gone through honestly so much, and we're still firm in that idea that we want to keep contributing. We want to keep giving back to this community. We keep, um, we still want to get more people debating. We still want more people to talk about certain things, and we still. You know, personally, we also want a platform to just rant about things that you want to talk about for that day. I'm happy we have an audience that celebrates with us the nerdiness that comes with the debate community. As our community of nerds, we wouldn't be here without you. 
I'm not even sure how many followers we have already because I haven't been checking. And that just, you know, that just amazes me still that we've reached like five digits even. And I'm so thankful. Um, I want to keep doing this. Thank you for giving us the space and the love to be able to do all of this. So that's it for episode 100. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.